Before we started recording the podcast yesterday, we talked about how aggressive we needed to get with the state and local health officials because of their ridiculous secrecy about trends with the coronavirus. So it was good to hear Governor Mike DeWine talk yesterday about the need for more transparency. We'll talk about it in today's episode of This Week in the CLE, the coronavirus podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with fellow editors Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, and Jane Cahoon. Good morning. Good morning. Howdy. What will it take to get public health officials across the state to start sharing data on coronavirus trends? Like, what percentage of people hospitalized in Ohio for the coronavirus have heart disease or diabetes or obesity, broken down by age, race, and gender? It's simply ridiculous that we cannot get that data in any kind of useful form yet. It would be instructive in understanding any policies that are going to be announced to reopen the state. State House Editor Jane Cahoon, Governor Mike DeWine must recognize this problem because he went pretty deep during his briefing Monday to articulate the need to publicize more data. Well, first, I just have to say that he was a little defensive when he made this announcement, or at least he sounded that way to us. He, he started off with a declaration that they're, they're reporting more data than they ever have on a granular level. And he, he really said this in a stern, almost angry tone. I mean, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but that's, it really seemed like a different tone to me. Well, I anyway. wondered, well, I wondered at first, did we talk about this on the podcast? Because, because I agree. <laughs> it was like he had heard our conversation, but we never really addressed it. So he must've heard from somebody I, else. I think he's, he's been under pressure from, from other media to release some of this stuff. And he just sounded like, you know, enough already. <laughs> but but anyway, he said that they're going to be reporting more information than they ever have, including an updated system for reporting information on nursing homes. Yeah, well, he said this all on a day when reporter Rich Exner pointed out that they had removed their nursing home data from the state website a couple of days after they finally posted it. What was that about? Oh, boy. So last Wednesday, for the first time, the Ohio Department of Health posted data on which nursing homes had positive coronavirus cases. But less than 24 hours later, poof, it just disappeared. So Rich had done a story on Wednesday night when they initially posted the data, and he had heard back from a few nursing homes who told him, hey, this isn't this isn't right. You know, one said that they their number was transposed, that it said they had 63 cases instead of 36. And and one said that they were listed as having a positive test, but in fact, they had only had one negative test. And I think another said they had like multiple locations that were all lumped together. Anyway, so he had been asking about those mistakes and hadn't really gotten an answer. And then Monday morning, he, he reached out and, you know, said, what's up with this? And that's when they said that, that there was this accuracy problem, and so they took it down. And then at, at Monday's briefing, DeWine explained that, yeah, they had accuracy problems, and he vowed that it's going to be posted every Wednesday and updated every Wednesday. And um, it's going to have more specifics, like breaking the numbers down by staff and patients. And they're also going to give a number of deaths from nursing home by county. Yeah, it'll be, it'll, I, I'm of mixed mind. I mean, they rushed to get it up, but it wasn't accurate. It makes you question other things they're putting up. DeWine added a new category of stats he said we'll be seeing soon. Right. They're going to post hospital level data on infections among healthcare workers. 
So, you know, a big concern of his all along has been protecting frontline healthcare workers, you know, making sure they have enough protective equipment. So this should show us, you know, how well they're being protected. But it's also the county health boards that are being unhelpful. It's the city of Cleveland Health Department. We're just not getting breakdowns in useful form. Chris Wernowski, we're filing records requests to force them to deny us so that we can get them into court. Right. And and so we've done this process before all of this. The, the, the state of Ohio actually established like a really great thing through the uh, Court of Claims, which allows us to combat denials of what we believe are open records. And we actually have a very, very high success rate of doing this with both the county and the city. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to compel them to to do what's right and to give us what we we believe the public deserves a right to see. I mean, there's just, you know, we joke around about this. We talked about this before, but like during the 1918 flu, you know, they would put signs in people's yard to to know to tell you like avoid this house this person has the flu and 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 in all of the time that's passed since then we've we've made it so restrictive to the point where it's almost impossible to find out any information about where the where this is at and where it's spreading and where it is and, and well and they wrap they wrap themselves in HIPAA which does not prevent them from releasing category data it's it's just they're they're so full of it when they say, oh, this is a privacy issue. It's not a privacy issue. And look, it's not just us. I'm hearing about this every day. And my feeling up to now is let's give them room. They're dealing with a crisis. But the public is fed up and we're fed up. And it's time to start providing the damn data, even if we have to haul them into court to get it. It's their, their public servants serve the public, for Christ's sake. It's this week in the CLE. What will Ohio schools look like even if they reopen this fall? Ohio Governor Mike DeWine made it official Monday that schools will not reopen in this academic year and students will finish the term learning remotely. No traditional proms, no graduations, no sports banquets. But as we discussed yesterday, the problems are not going away. The virus will be out there come fall. So what do they look like? Jane Cahoon DeWine offered a few thoughts about this, even though he said he hasn't decided if schools will actually reopen in the fall at all. Right. He, he made a point of saying that we flattened the curve, but it's still dangerous. What he signaled was that in the fall, maybe we'll see some sort of blend of remote and classroom learning. But, you know, Pete Krauss talked to superintendents about that, and they said, if you started to break the, the students into smaller groups, you need more staff. You need more teachers. How do you pay for that? Did Wine offer any clue about that? Not really, but he stressed that each school district is, is going to be different and they're going to have to customize their plans. So, so I guess so, it will be up to them to figure that out. Right? Yeah, so, so, you know, you might need more teachers and you have to figure out how to pay for them. Uh, DeWine did seem concerned about groups of kids at special risk, kids with immunity complications or kids without access to broadband for remote learning. Did he have solutions for that? No, he, he didn't offer a specific solution, but he, he did stress that, that he's particularly worried about those children. Laura Johnston, did what you heard give you confidence or any sanity? If we have a blend of at-home and remote learning, how will you make sure your kids are safe during the at-home part if you were back working in an office? You said yesterday you think a lot of kids are not really paying attention. I think we're hearing a lot of that. There's a lot of YouTube watching. 
Do you think by fall schools will have figured some things out about how to make sure that the kids are doing what they're supposed to? Uh, DeWine said many districts are planning for a different landscape. I don't know how much planning has gone on yet. I think everybody was waiting to hear whether they'd be able to resume normal. And I think we're just coming to terms with the idea that we can't. And so yesterday I kind of lost some of my optimism. But like Jane said, it's going to be up to each district to design a solution. So maybe the school boards will ask parents what they want. Maybe there'll be some some levies on the, the ballot this fall to pay for more teachers. Um, I've heard some parents that don't want to send their kids back to school until there's a vaccine at all. So maybe you have some kids doing remote learning and some come to school based on parental preference. But, but let's face it, the remote learning is not working. I mean, it was a stopgap because it's a crisis, but you got parents helping kids with tests. You got kids barely paying attention. You, you cannot educate a child this way and, no, and make yeah. it work. So what it's do you taking do? my daughter like less than an hour to do all of her assignments for the day. And so, you know, it's just like, okay, now, now what do you do? I was like, like write a paragraph. I'm trying to have them keep a journal about how they feel about the coronavirus so they can share it with their kids. But if they only go a half day or something, childcare is going to be a huge issue. My kids, like a lot of kids go to aftercare. It's a couple of dozen kids running around a gym in a lunchroom. That's obviously not going to be happening. Um, so and you, look, and you have a lot of freedom. I mean, you put in a long day, but you can break it up into patterns that work around what you need to do. But if you worked for a health insurer where you're taking calls all day long, you really can't get up and go and deal with child issues in the middle of it because you got, right. you got business hours. So how did, I mean, how does that work? And a lot of this comes down to money. I mean, if, if you don't have the money to have somebody do stay-at-home care, if kids have limited access to broadband, is it the school district's responsibility to help them get it, to give them computers? I mean, how do you do this for an entire school year? Uh, it just raises so many questions. I don't think there are answers for them yet. And I think you're right. The more money you have, the easier it is to throw money at problems, to to hire people, to make it easier. But it's not just the amount of money or your type of job. It's also how old your kids are. You know, the, these high school kids, I think they can do some distance learning. I think they're responsible enough to research on their own. But, you know, some people have, you know, preschoolers that need to learn the alphabet. And you can't just sit them in front of Sesame Street and hope it works. I mean, there are just so yeah, many questions. All of this really just seems half-baked. And you get the feeling from you know, the parents that we hear from and the teachers that we hear from. They don't feel like they're part of this, that they're not hearing things from Columbus that give them any confidence that this will work. And I get it. They're, Columbus is probably more focused on the, the going back to work rules, although we haven't heard what those are either. Um, <laughs> but but I guess we just need to, to there's more to come and we have to wait and see what it is it's this week in the CLE. Who are the people protesting shutdown orders in Columbus and other state capitals? And is it really a tiny minority that is getting outsized news coverage? We've had a run over the last week of protests of the state shutdown orders. It's not very large groups of people, sometimes just tens of them, shouting that their liberty has been compromised. They don't seem to follow social distancing rules, which could get pretty dangerous. But they get heavy coverage, which gives an impression, if you follow the news, that this is becoming a big movement. Chris Wernowski, most polls show overwhelming support for the shutdown orders as late as yesterday. Why are these small protests getting so much attention? 
Well, I think part of it is incumbent on the media to sort of like look at, you know, these things happen on weekends. It's generally a slow, slow news time for a lot of news outlets. So they send out a camera crew and they they talk to the people. They they get some photos of ridiculous signs and then they go back and they do their story. And and what this gives you the impression of is that this is a big movement, that this is a, you know, a grassroots effort to do, you know, to, to about freedom and the inability to go to Applebee's. And 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 right. and, and if, if you really pull back, like I saw a very interesting photograph that sort of was juxtaposed with, you know, if you take a very like narrow shot, a, a close up shot of these protests, it looks like. It's a it's an event. And if you pull back and take like a much an empirical look at what's going on there, it's usually just a handful of people and business is going on around them. Like the rest of real life is sort of just going on around it. And people are kind of just like, whatever. What happens is, is then this gets aired and then the people at home see that and they go, hey, I need a haircut, too. And then they start sharing the story on social media and then it grows. It's it's literally viral. I mean, it's (laughs) it spreads the same way that fire spread. But, and so, but it's artificial, you, though. I mean, it, there. I mean, it really isn't a movement. And most people, they did a poll. I forget where it was yesterday. I think it was legitimate. A poll. Most Americans disagree with what the protesters are doing. But if you watch the news, you would feel that this is a growing bona fide movement. Partly because the president has said he supports it. But think about it this way. So you know. A lot of Americans get their news from TV still. And if you, over the past like 20 years, since 9-11, every once in a while there's a story and they'll have B-roll footage of some people in the Middle East or in Afghanistan or something outside of the U.S. Embassy burning an American flag or burning the president in effigy or whatever. And it's the same principle. Like uh, Americans look at that and go, Oh, like, you know, people in the Middle East, they don't like Americans. But if you pull back, it's like 20 dudes standing around. And and it's it's the same thing here. It's like as as somebody called them, you know, America's divorced dads are out with their guns doing, you know, their dress up. And 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 it is. I mean, it's just it's it's such a handful of people. But but it's but but it is dangerous if if mainstream America starts to think. This is a bona fide movement and not just some wingnuts that are out there, you know, endangering themselves. It gets dangerous. Jane Cahoon, Facebook shut down pages that were organizing these protests because in some states the protests are prohibited. But Facebook checked in Ohio and decided to leave the pages for our state B. Why? Right. Well, they took down protest pages in California, Nebraska, and New Jersey. And they cited guidance they got from the governors in those states that the protests violated the stay at home orders. Therefore, they didn't want to be part of anything, you know, promoting anything illegal. So they reached out to the DeWine administration for guidance on Ohio and got a response simply saying the governor values the First Amendment and asked that protesters practice social distancing by standing at least six feet apart. So they left the pages up in Ohio. So the governor has no problem with these protests. It looked like yesterday he moved his briefing to a different place out of worry about these protests because some of these people have guns. Correct. He They moved it to the Department of Public Safety uh, for security reasons, apparently. And clearly, clearly not really. for the quality of the streaming <laughs> because the thing broke down repeatedly yesterday. But he's, he's repeatedly said these people have a, every right to be out there protesting. He just 
hopes that they don't get close to each other. Don't shout on each other. These things also have a dark tone to them. Reporter Laura Hancock wrote a story about a very clearly anti-Semitic sign that one set of protesters was flashing. And our health director, Dr. Amy Acton, who by, by most accounts is doing a fabulous job, is Jewish. That's pretty awful. Some legitimate news outlets are reporting these protests are anything but spontaneous. They're being organized by some very right-wing groups with, with some support from the president and, and some white supremacy themes. What, what's going on there? Well, this was really horrifying to see in our state capitol. And I don't know if these people were affiliated with any particular group, but the photograph captured these two guys in a minivan one holding a sign with an illustration of a, a rodent and the Star of David. It, it was just really disturbing. Yeah. And it, deservedly, uh, they were mocked and condemned on, on social media for that. The odd thing is that a lot of the people I've seen in the photos look like they might have the very underlying conditions that make people vulnerable to getting really sick from the coronavirus, and they're all crowding together. I wonder if we're going to see stories pretty soon about protesters who are now getting sick. And then there was that fantastic photo by the Columbus dispatch photographer, probably going to win a Pulitzer, of the protesters with their faces plastered against the statehouse door windows. And the Washington Post had a great story likening it to a shot right out of a zombie movie. And then they interviewed zombie movie directors to get their thoughts. Yeah, anybody who hasn't seen that photo should make a point of looking it up. It was taken by Joshua Bickle of the Dispatch, and it and it went viral. It just really captured a moment and gave you a sense of of how people inside the building must have felt at the time. Well, the minute somebody says it looks like a scene from a zombie movie, it's just <laughs> like exactly that's what it looks like. It's I mean, what with they- their mouths wide open, shouting, and another guy wearing some kind of a weird mask. And one of the directors said it was too over to- too over the top. They wouldn't have staged it that over the top. <laughs> so, what about Jim Jordan? Here's an Ohio congressman who wants to hold hearings on whether shutdown orders violate our liberty. Is that a nod to these protesters? Is he basically saying he'd prefer not to have social distancing? Well, we, we've gotten accustomed to Jim Jordan having pretty much the most extreme view on just about any issue. He's portraying this as a crazy left-wing Democratic plot to overthrow President Trump. And um, honestly, I believe some of our state lawmakers feel this way, too, because they're holding these hearings this economic recovery task force where they're hearing testimony to that effect. Wow. That's amazing because I think it's pretty clear that everything that we've done in Ohio kept us from having the experience of New York or even Michigan or Louisiana. And Republicans are in charge of our state. Yeah. It's just amazing. Anyway, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Can Ohio's private labs help out with the coronavirus testing crisis? First they could, then they couldn't. Now, Jane Cahoon, they can. Yes, back on April 1st, Dr. Amy Acton, Governor Mike DeWine's health director, told hospitals to stop sending these tests to these private labs because the slow turnaround for the results was just unacceptable. But now apparently they've they've cleared up their backlogs and DeWine welcomed them back Monday and said it's okay for, for hospitals or anybody to send their tests there. But our slow testing is not really based on labs, right? It's based on the fact that we don't have the the testing materials, the things called the reagents. So how does it help if you have a bunch of labs, but you don't have the materials they need to do the testing? 
You're right. The shortage of materials is is really the problem. But the governor hopes to that the FB, FDA is going to do something about this. We, I mean, we've only tested about one percent of Ohio's population, so he's trying to do something about that. So he talked a lot about this. Did he offer us any kind of prediction on when we'll be doing the kind of testing that experts say we need before we start reopening the state? We keep waiting for an answer on that one. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. Does Ohio have the right to close non-essential businesses during the coronavirus pandemic? Chris Warnowski, the answer seems to be an emphatic yes, based on a ruling out of Columbus that involved a bridal shop. Right. So a federal judge has basically told uh, this bridal shop, hey, you know, this is a the the government does have the right to do to shut down non-essential businesses during a, a pandemic crisis. And, and, and it seems to sort of follow just, you know, common sense and the law. <laughs> it's amazing how often bridal shops are in the news with any kind of epidemic. We had it with Ebola. Part of what they wanted here was the right to protest the decision. But even there, the judge sided with the state. Right. And it's and, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this is just an emergency situation. You know, I you know, most most states and, and I believe even the federal government have, you know, their go arounds for the executive branch to sort of make decisions in, in the case of an emergency like this, I think, sort of falls under that umbrella. If, if you if you know, from from my understanding, from the reporter who covered this there, you know, there was a lot of skepticism from the judge about this. And, and so we're probably, I mean, they may fight it on appeal and, and, and continue this fight, but you know, it just, you know, from the get go, it just seems sort of like a, an uphill battle for the, for the complaint that they had. You know, the interesting thing about public health is that it's not about the individual. If it was just about me and whether I might get sick, then I think the state would have a harder argument to make that they can limit me. But because this is about protecting the community, it's different. If I go out and I'm contagious and I can get a whole lot of people sick, then it's com- the communal health that we're talking about, what the state does regulate. It's odd, though, that the same argument doesn't apply to insurance. You can do all sorts of dangerous things that raise the likelihood that you'll need expensive health care that we all end up paying for, but the state doesn't do anything to stop that. No, and and so it, it's... It's that weird. I, I mean, one of the things that I covered long, long time ago when I was a reporter was the actually the first lawsuit that was related to the Obamacare legislation. It was the one that went to the Supreme Court and that John Roberts upheld. And and one of the one of the key arguments of the government in support of that was you don't get to choose when you participate in our health care system that you can say, like, I don't want this government health care. But the minute you get done saying that and you walk outside and you get hit by a bus, you are participating in the healthcare system. And whether right. you have insurance or not, a doctor is going to have to take care of you. And so right. it's, you know, we and we've and this is coming up, at, you know, as we talk about these protests and we talk about people, you know, you see people out there saying, don't give these people who are protesting health care. Don't don't waste a ventilator on them. And it's like, well, a doctors take an oath to treat everybody. So, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to parse out healthcare to people who were irresponsible and go out and, and put themselves at risk. And so, you know, that's just not how our health system, healthcare system has worked. And, and, you know, so I think we're, I think we're at a moment in American history where a lot of people are really telling on themselves because 
you know, we hear all of these stories about World War II, about the Depression, and about the collective sacrifice that Americans made in order and for the greater good. You know, when right. we talk about this idea of the greater good and 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 things like this really go against that. You know, it's but it's also very difficult to tell somebody who owns a small business, hey, buddy, you're out of luck because because right. you lose the livelihood and they they worry about, you know, where they're going to get well, food and pay. And the rent. system, you know, I mean, the system hasn't worked. You know, we we gave out billions of dollars in money with no oversight. Companies like Ruth Christ and Shake Shack went and grabbed some biz- like money that was designated for small businesses. And so Shake Shack it, did give it back. in the Yeah, end. they did give it back, but they only gave it back when they found out they had another source of money. Yeah. So so, you know, it's there's there is there's a lesson to be learned here. But I hope people learn the long the right lesson, which is, you know. We're this all in this well, together. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it is that, but, but, you know, but that's corny, but at the same time, it's like, look, you can, you can complain that these systems are broken, but they got broken for a reason. And it's really like, like what the government is wanting us to do now is, is to make sure that people don't die. And that, that, that is and sort that, of right. getting and that's, and that's right. And that's, the, that's why these protests have been interesting because the protesters are basically insisting on their right to spread the infection, which will raise mortality. Anyway, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are Greater Cleveland's craft breweries in danger of going out of business because of the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, our beer expert, Mark Bona, had a disturbing story last week about the very serious threat they're facing, which is a shame because of how much good news they have been for the Cleveland economy. Yeah, this is really bad news for the craft breweries, considering especially how much uh, alcohol Ohioans have been drinking while they're stuck at home. So apparently, (laughs) crowlers might be in shortened supply. These are the 32-ounce to-go aluminum cans that are filled up at breweries. So those are a problem. If you can't have those, you can't go fill it up if you don't have your own growler, too. It's just, it's a young industry that can't really take an extended hit right now. Why are they so troubled, though? Grocery stores are open. People can still buy beer. Is it that they don't sell a lot of beer through retail outlets, that they sell it directly or at bars, which are closed? Right. Well, not all the breweries have the distribution chain to can their beer and sell it at grocery stores. The ones that can, pun intended, I guess, are a little better off. But I think I think the breweries have really gained a reputation because of all these cool spaces they've opened in. They're supposed to be gathering spots, and right now we're not allowed to gather. Think about beer tasting festivals. Those are a big deal for craft brewers. Those are canceled. And about 46% of the nation's craft breweries said that they would close for good within three months if they can't reopen. Part of the problem is their product, right? It can't sit in storage. It's got to it's gotta turn over. Right. It's an organic problem. A problem. <laughs> that is a problem. It's an organic product, so it's not filled with preservatives. There are sell-by dates for a reason. India Pale Ale, the IPA, is arguably the most popular style in this market, and it shows a big difference between fresh and old. You can't just hold on to it forever. It's why you're not supposed to sell Christmas ale in April. Is part of this the messaging? Are they just not getting the word out to their customers that their beer is available? Or is it they can't sell the volume they need to, to pay their bills? I think it's a combination. People aren't leaving their homes much, so they might not be making an extra effort to stop by their favorite brewery to fill up, you know, their growler. Um, But this is a big problem 
that we're going to be looking at. Ohio has about 335 craft breweries, 50 open last year alone. So it's a growing business that all of a sudden might just get stomped on. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay. Well, DeWine talked schools yesterday. When do we think we'll actually get the specifics that he keeps promising us on how businesses will reopen? I think we'll get a clue when John Houston comes back to the briefing because <laughs> he's been Good absent point. and DeWine always points out that he's there with businesses working on, on this plan. So I think when he comes back, that, that'll be a sure sign. Hopefully there is a huge hunger for it. I mean, we're hearing from people every day that are trying to understand how it will work. Although I still think a lot of people have learned to work from home and don't want to go back to work. I mean, if I... If we open the newsroom tomorrow, would any of you want to go back in there? Are you going to take my kids? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I saw that in Georgia, they're rolling open business on Friday, like this Friday. And they're they're opening with like gyms and hair salons. And people, you know, talk about the protesters saying their liberties being taken away by businesses closing. There are plenty of people really angry that they're opening businesses because well, they're saying you're putting me you know, in harm's way because you are opening too soon. Well, my, my question is somewhat pragmatic. If, if our newsroom all gets back together and somebody gets it or somebody is contagious, and even though we're doing all the steps we need to not get it, you know, we could wipe out a portion of our staff while we're trying to cover the biggest story in history. And my feeling is so far what we're doing, it's working. We're doing a hell of a job. The You guys and your staffs have done tremendous work. I mean, I'm getting thanked every day. I don't want to cut that. But but for your own personal safety, would you feel comfortable going back into that setting now? I mean, this no. is... No. <laughs> no. No, I, I, I mean, there's... You know, also, think about that trend, and we are part of it, toward open offices, you know, where no one has an office or a cubicle, and we all sit at tables really close together, and you don't have your own space, and you bring in everything. There's no you know, we just have a drawer to keep our stuff in. That seems like the opposite of what you'd want if you are going back to an office. You don't want to share this communal tight space with everybody. Well, let's, well maybe we can outline it this way. If you work at an office that has 100 people, which three of those people are you willing to sacrifice in order to work in an office? Like, I mean, that's those are the numbers. I mean, that's that's the you know, if there's a three percent death rate from something, that's what you're risking. And and I think I think it has to be thought of in those terms. Yeah, I agree. Well, I hope those rules come today. If they do, we'll be talking about them tomorrow on This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura, Chris, and Jane. And thank you for listening. 